Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud Based Ma'am. Just got off the phone with Steph Davis, climber, base jumper, wingsuiter, trail runner. Uh, she chases it hard out there in the desert. She lives in Moab, has had a fascinating, interesting life. She was a musician and a pianist and then went to law school and uh, chased a PhD for a little while, but just fascinating, contemplative, very cool person. I met her originally out at a Garmin uh, ambassador thing a couple years ago, and I've been wanting to get her on the show because as I've promised to you, we're trying to reach out to people that are uh, beyond the kind of paragliding spectrum that we typically talk to. So uh, Steph does fly and so does her husband, but she's also, she's much more interested in uh, climbing rock and, and jumping off them. So this is a great one. I think you're going to get a lot out of this and really enjoy it. We dive pretty deep into uh, just life and, and adventure. And so I think you're going to enjoy this show. Very brief housekeeping. We've got just got delivered yesterday a whole big box of brand new Cloud Base Mayhem trucker hats from Patagonia. So uh, these are very, very cool. And I'll have those up on the store shortly. So if you're looking for some cool trucker hats, have a look on the website here in a couple of days and I'll have that all live for you. And the other one is insurance. We have updated the insurance article for travel and for accident insurance, especially when you're out of the country or more than 100 miles away from home. Uh, the article on the on the website, when you just put in the search term insurance, is called Unscrambling Insurance. Are you covered? Have a look at that. I've just updated that. Um, we're working more closely with Geos, who is, who is they are the ones that are activated when you hit your SOS on your spot or your inReach. And so they have very similar coverage to the coverage I've been talking about with Global Rescue. Um, it's not quite the same, and Global Rescues is a little more uh, padded and has a lot more with it, but uh, you could also go the Geos route when you travel, and so not just for SOS when you press that button, but for evac insurance and repatriation and getting you home, and then also some updates with the travel insurance with uh, having comps covered and that kind of thing. So go check out that article and ping me on whatever platform you like to use if you have any questions but let's get into it for now please enjoy this conversation with a very fascinating person steph davis Steph, uh, so excited to have you on the podcast. I have been pretty myopic about interviewing a lot of paragliders, so I'm excited to interview <laughs> you and talk to you about your wonderful, fanciful world of jumping and biking, climbing, and uh, also free flight, And uh, but free flight in a much more, I guess, extreme way than, than what we typically talk about. So uh, welcome to the mayhem, and, and thanks for sharing your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, cool. And you're in Moab now, right? I am. Yeah. That's my first question is, uh, why Moab? Why has that been your center, your base? I came through Moab. Uh, let me think. I was a college sophomore and at the time I was at Fort Collins at Colorado State University. So I came to Indian Creek to climb because Indian Creek is, you know, this huge destination for crack climbing. And, um, didn't really stop in Moab so much, but I loved Indian Creek. And then when I was out of school and just basically became a climbing bum, <laughs> it was 
the best place that I could think of to be. So it became my base at that time. I wasn't really jumping. This was like 20, 25 years ago, something like that. Um, but then when I started base jumping, you know, as it turns out, Moab is also a world destination for base jumping. And I mean, really everything I'm, I'm pretty big into trail running. Um, if you like river sports, mountain biking, it's kind of like this place where you can do all of these great activities and it's getting, getting a lot of tourism now, which is affecting the town and how the town feels, but it always has been that kind of small town vibe too. I, I've always just had such a fast, you know, I went to see you in Boulder. And so when I was a climber back, I, I got into climbing back just after, out of high school and into college and that, you know, like it just captured me. And so I chased it probably way too hard for a while. And so we would take these, you know, long road trips out to Moab for like one day of climbing and go all the way yeah. back. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's just, but I was also a big, well, am was, and am now a huge fan of Edward Abbey. And the way he writes about that place is just, oh, it's such a special area. Have you flown here in the LaSalle's? I haven't. And that's ridiculous. I haven't actually flown in Colorado. I mean, I know you're in Utah, but, um, you know, every time I've gone down that way, I always get hung up around Virgin and Zion and I just don't keep going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I should, you know, there's a lot of guys are doing flights and girls are doing flights from like Monroe peak down by Monroe and, and, uh, and all, also like from Insbo and they've landed in Moab, you know, they've flown all the way across, you know, most of Utah and, and gotten to you. And so I'd love, that would just be such a cool flight, but no, I haven't. I need to. It's pretty cool. I mean, there's a pretty small paragliding community here, but people are motivated and people are doing pretty cool stuff up in those cells. So not doing like big cross countries out of it, but mm. just having a good time flying around those peaks. So if you're ever just passing through, it would be a fun thing. And don't you guys have that, uh, what do you call it? The It's like a turkey boogie. Yeah, there's um, it's Thanksgiving time of year, and a a lot of base jumpers just kind of like flock to Moab, and um, it's just it's good word. Kinda, it's loosely it's Thanksgiving organized. and flocking. <laughs> That's a great. Yeah, word. I would I would have a hard time calling it organized per se, but it's just basically like people know that at that time of year, a lot of people come to town. And you set up that crazy net thing, right, where you walk out there and then just drop through. Um, the slackline people do that. So then so at the same time, it's funny because it started, you know, years ago, it was really loose and casual. It was Jimmy and Marta, um, Apex base used to be vertigo and they just would have Thanksgiving dinner at their house for like the 10 or 15 friends that would come to Moab. And, um, they called it the Turkey boogie. And then from there, it's kind of expanded into this just concept where, you know, a lot of people come and then the slackline people kind of got in on the same thing where they started having this big event at the same time of year. So it's just, yeah, there's a lot going on at that time. So let, let's imagine you come over to a party and like I'm throwing a party and you come over and there's a bunch of people there that haven't heard your name or don't know you. And they ask you, Hey, uh, nice to meet you. What do you do? How do you answer that? <laughs> I always, I always kind of flail when people ask me that. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I think partly because I do a lot of different things and partly because it's sort of a weird um, career in a way. So it, it's like not one of those easy things where somebody says, what do you do? And you say, oh, you know, I'm a nurse. 
and then you can move on. Right. <laughs> like, right. It just opens this entire can of worms where people are like, what does that mean? <laughs> 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 so sometimes I'm kind of like, Ugh. <laughs> um, usually they, well, it depends on who you're talking to. Actually, it's funny you said that because I was just at the dentist and the <laughs> dental hygienist goes, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an athlete. And he goes, what does that mean? And then, you know, you have your mouth open. Right. And so, wow. <laughs> I know. I'm like, well, this is sort of a tough conversation while you're cleaning my teeth. <laughs> Um, well, and then finally I just said, you know, I'm a climber and I do a lot of marketing. I was just trying to keep it short cause I was getting yeah. my teeth clean, but, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> but again, it, it just depends. Cause a lot of people that move in our communities, you know, everybody knows exactly what that means. If you say that you make your living as an athlete, but when you get out of these sports communities, people just aren't as familiar with that as a job. And so, and there's different aspects, right? You know, there is the marketing side. There's being an influencer. I also have my own businesses on different levels. So a lot of times it just depends on who I'm talking to as to what I think that they would relate to or, or might find a little more relatable because it's usually because we're having a conversation. Mm. I, so I didn't know about your life outside of being an athlete. What are the businesses? Um, well, I run my own climbing events in Moab. Mm. And I've done that for the last 10 years now. And so that is my business. Um, I always bring my sponsors into it because it's great for them too, but sure. it is my business. And so it's basically running events. Okay. So that's like what Rebecca does here with Rebecca's private Idaho with her bike, you know, with her, her gravel thing. Oh, I don't know it, but it's probably, I would imagine it's about yeah, the same Yeah, I think that's a huge part of her, you know, just personal success is, have, is is running these events. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have to check that out. I don't, I didn't know what she was doing with that. That's cool. So that's okay. Um, if you don't mind me asking how much, it, like how, how do you divide your athlete side of things and influencer side of things with events? You know, what, uh -huh. is it 60, 40? Is it 90, 10? Well, I also have gotten into public speaking. Okay. And so that's another, I, I would call another arm of my business. And so, because they're all very different on some level and they all fill different niches for me um, from a business perspective and kind of from a personal perspective. And so to me, the way I see, um, the way I make a living is one side is being an athlete ambassador influencer, you know, however you like to title that or whatever the deliverables might imply. And then the other side is my clinics. And then the other side is public speaking. Okay. And do you have a manager or are you doing all this on your own? I don't have a manager. Um, that has been sort of a challenge over the last years by far. Um, and so pretty recently I started working with a friend who is an, he's an agent manager, but since I'm so established and I have created so much of the stuff that I'm kind of dealing with on my own, it's a really nice kind of synergy where basically if I have something that I don't think I can handle in terms of negotiation or something like that, um, I can just pass it off to him. And then if he has something, cause he has a bunch of other clients that he kind of manages full time. If he has something that comes through his carousel and he's like, Oh, this would be a, a great fit for stuff. Then he'll call me. So it's really, really nice because the problem I've had 
in the past looking to potentially work with a manager is that typically people want to manage your whole everything for you. And I've been doing this for a really long time and I have a lot of relationships that I don't think would work if I tried to hand them off to somebody else. And so I've never been able to say, Oh yes, you know, take control of all my contracts, all my relationships. Um, I've just, haven't really felt able to do that. So what I have going on with Matt is super nice because it's just a very, you know, it's kind of like a one by one type thing. I always like, I always compare kind of what we do and you're doing it at a different level, obviously, but for a long time, I, I dated a gal named Jody McDonald, who's a very, very talented photographer. And it was really interesting to watch her work because so much of the work was at the computer and not so much. It was unbelievable so much. how much it editing. Is. I mean, it was like 90, 10 of just marketing and getting stuff out there and making the contacts and editing yeah. and just yeah. editing it over shooting. And it always seemed backwards to me. It's amazing. Well, and I know, you know, cause you, I think you do almost exactly what I do with probably some variations, but <laughs> it's crazy that to me, when I think of what I do for work, it's not the sports that I do or the training that I do. If I only did that, I don't think I, that, that would not lead to me being successful <laughs> from sure. a business perspective. And that's always the irony. Cause I think sometimes people look at you from the outside and they think, Oh, look, she gets paid to climb and base jump. And, um, it's absolutely not. It's yeah, you very get paid to provide content. Exactly. And to, you know, foster relationships and, you know, provide services and you know, do all the things that are not the going out climbing and jumping part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, I'd like to get your take on this. Well, first, when did you figure out that this could be a lifestyle? I mean, did this kind of just organically happen out of college or was this, uh, something that you were, you know, from when you were 10, you're like, I'm going to be a professional athlete. I didn't really do sports as a kid. And I wasn't brought up in a family that actually valued athletics at all or outdoor activities. So I grew up in the East coast and pretty kind of sheltered suburban lifestyle, um, professional parents, uh, that really believe in education, <laughs> things like that. God <laughs> so forbid. I, what? <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, those things are all great, but, um, there was definitely, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of great things I got from my parents, um, for just a really strong sense of discipline, um, serious work ethic, um, being very conservative in your lifestyle, by which I mean like living under your means, not within your means. Mm. Um, all these things that have really served me very well in climbing and in life, but none of those things were brought into like the outdoor realm. So when I started climbing, I was 18 and it was just something I had, I didn't know anything about it at all. Um, especially, you know, this is in the early nineties. Was so, that the move to Fort Collins? Was that what kind of, was that the yeah. catalyst was just being in yeah. a new place, meeting new people? Oh no, I started climbing in Maryland. Okay. I got taken out for a day and, um, it was real small. So people were kind of desperate to find people to climb with because we didn't have the climbing gyms and the media and stuff like that. It was just this kind of weird fringe thing. So I just totally fell in love with it. It was something really different for me. And then that precipitated me moving out to Colorado because I, again, we didn't really have the climbing gym scene back then. So if you wanted to climb, you had to actually go get out where the rocks were and Colorado was making a lot more sense. So I transferred 
to Colorado State University and then did a master's degree there. And that kind of just got me out of the East Coast. What was your master's in? In literature. Oh, fascinating. Do you do a lot of writing? Yeah, I do. Um, I especially did a lot um, in the last, I would say, couple decades. And when I wrote my second book, I that was kind of a big push because <laughs> I hadn't done such long form stuff in a while with all the blogging um, and social media. And nowadays, I feel like I think like a lot of people, I a lot of my writing is. I almost feel like it sounds like ridiculous to say this, but is geared more towards the social media format. Mm-hmm. So I'm not doing um, anything more long form right now. E- even my blogging has really dropped off recently. Just it's kind of like the first thing to go when I get too busy. Right. Sure. Well, I want to talk to, I, the, the, that's a world that I'm fascinated by. And I, w- I definitely want to talk more about your business, but so when you were, but let's just, let's, get to that point when you were back in Colorado and you know, you got really into climbing, when did it kind of hit you that like, okay, instead of literature, I'm going to be a climber. (laughs) Well, okay. So I started climbing in Maryland and I was actually majoring in music at that time. I'd been, I had been um, a musician my whole life and was really serious about it. And I was a pianist and I, in my mind, I thought that's what I was going to pursue. When I started climbing, everything just kind of blew up and got really derailed because I just wanted to climb so much. And so I, um, I quit piano, I quit music and I changed my major to English because I also really liked reading. <laughs> so <laughs> That's just kind of what made sense at the time. I was on scholarship, so I wasn't going into debt for this. Um, and then, yeah, when I, when I went out to Fort Collins, I, I, I really loved school actually. And when I got my master's, I was a teaching assistant, which meant that um, my tuition was being paid and I was teaching writing. So I was taking courses to learn how to teach at the same time. So it was kind of this really cool um, dual experience. It really, to me, it was so much better than just getting the English degree because I was also learning how to teach. So I was enjoying all that a ton. Um, going to school, teaching, climbing, you know, it was this really great balance of everything. And when I graduated, uh, I guess the expectation of my family was that if you have a master's degree in English, you, that's, you know, you're going to do something else. (laughs) And so I applied to PhD programs. Um, I almost went to Salt Lake to get a PhD in American studies at university of Utah. I was very close to doing that. Um, but instead I just kind of, Honestly, I kind of panicked and I had also been accepted to a bunch of law schools and I I spent the summer climbing in Estes Park. I was really happy. I was waiting tables. It was great. And then um I was like, "Oh my gosh, I I got uh, I can't just not do anything." And so I started school in Boulder, Boulder Law School, um after just, you know, the summer after the master's degree and within a week I I just thought, you know, I I can't do this. I got to go climbing. And so I (laughs) made this pretty big leap and started living in my Oldsmobile and climbing and without really a plan. Um, You became a dirtbag. I became a dirtbag. Yeah. And so 
that that was kind of what it was. It was sort of like I was in this nice little fairy tale where I could go to school and I could be respectable and I was teaching and, you know, everything was great. And that was working really well with climbing. And then when that was over and I kind of had to move forward on a different plane, it just wasn't letting me climb like I wanted to climb. And I kind of had to make that choice. And it was, it was real scary. Um, but that's what I did. I imagine your parents were, weren't exactly thrilled either. No, this was a really hard time for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Have they, have they come around? They have. I mean, first of all, my older brother, he, um, he's a doctor. Hmm. So that helps. That helps. Yes. One good one. Um, He's also a skier and a paraglider and a base jumper, but you know, he's, he's a lot more, he always stayed on track, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Responsible. Yeah. So he, he at least wasn't stressful. And, um, and yeah, for, for my parents, it was really tough. Um, I mean, it was tough for me too, especially in the beginning. Cause again, you have to wind the clock back. This is 1995. There is no, um, free solo, the movie, <laughs> there's no, um, constant media with extreme right. sports. There's sure. no climbing, going to the Olympics. There's no sponsored climbers making a living. It wasn't like that. Sure. And so being a climber meant you had to go be a dirtbag. And that part was just, you know, obviously think of yourself as a parent. That part was just really hard to deal with. And then on the secondary level, the fact that climbing has danger attached to it. And I was also pretty quickly getting into this big expedition phase. And so I was going to Pakistan and South America. And again, we didn't have internet like we do now. So I would just literally disappear for like two or three months out of the year or actually a season. And so, and I wasn't really living anywhere permanent, even when I came back. And so, yeah, I think as a parent, it was probably a nightmare, especially parents with my priorities or that my parents' priorities. Tough question, but do you miss those days? Yeah, I do on so many levels. I mean, there are really ways in which I don't because I remember very well what it was like to be just hanging out in the back of my truck. And then, you know, it's a rest day and it's very boring and you've read all your books and you've written in your journal, you did your laundry and took your shower and you still got like 10 more hours till tomorrow. And and then, you know, also just thinking like, what am I doing with my life? I, wow. You know, I just walked away from my entire life path and I don't know where this goes. And that's kind of scary and stressful. And, um, you know, will I ever have a house to live in? I doubt it. I don't have any money. (laughs) You know, I, I really don't miss that part of it. Um, what I do miss is the reason I did that. And the trade-off was just the absolute focus on what I wanted to be doing. And literally a hundred percent of my life was directed toward climbing. And it was also a really nice moment in time where we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have internet. And so every few rest days I would take my calling card and go to a payphone <laughs> and call my parents or, <laughs> you know, or I would send postcards to people. So I, I missed that pace of life. And I think that, you know, they always say there's no going back because Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't go back to that time in my life right now for many reasons, but that life is also gone because 
you can't escape the fact of global connection now. You can't just disappear in Patagonia because if you go to Patagonia, your cell phone works and hmm. people expect you to answer emails. I think we all miss that. I, I was asked a question when we were touring with uh, North Unknown when I was in Telluride. I was asked a question by the audience. We did this kind of panel thing with Timmy O'Neill and stuff, and I just flailed. You know, and the question was basically you know, like, how how do you deal with the fact that you have to be a content provider, that you have to be doing, you know, does that take away from the experience, you know, when you're going across Alaska and the answer is, of course, yes, <laughs> of course it takes away from the experience. It totally changes it. It totally, you know, and you can have a really good attitude about it, but it's, I, it's, it's not something I've figured out, you know, it's not something I figured out that like that balance between the nineties and now I mm -hmm. think it's something we all miss because I used to read a lot more books. It's just, right. I, I just feel like my job now is never done. I just constantly yeah. have, you know, God, I got to do another Instagram, whatever. It's just, I don't, I, in a lot of ways, when I, when I'm asked, what, what is my question here? When I'm asked p from people, you know, Hey, like I, I want to get into being a sponsored athlete. My answer most of the time is like, you know what? I think it's better to just get a job and then go do this stuff. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Get a decent job, you know, that you like, that you can be passionate about and that you can, you know, that, that allows you enough time off that you can just go climb or do whatever you do without any of that. I don't know. I, I mean, I often feel like I work much harder at the content side than I would if I just had a job. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really hard to achieve the balance. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, but I think that's true for a lot of people in life. Sure. And so and I no matter think what it's, they're doing. yeah, because it's, everything is so nonstop nowadays. And I think our culture in this country is very focused on working and succeeding. And then not just that, I think that we are very insecure in this country because we don't, we don't think that there are systems in place to help us with things, mm. um, like healthcare or childcare or, um, you know, pensions, things like that. Like that doesn't really exist. No. And so I think that because we have so little feeling security, it's, it's really difficult to say, Oh, you know, now it's time to stop. And I like where I'm at and things are good financially. And I'll do the other things because none of us really know what's going to happen. Mm. at any time. And, and honestly, I almost think it's harder to be in a traditional job and dealing with those feelings because, um, I think when you've lived pretty lean and, and you know how to be a minimalist and there are things that you prioritize a lot more than, um, maybe more material things, you do have that security of like, Hey, I know how to do that. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that you know, it's, it's really a good thing to understand. I mean, let's put it this way. Pretty much the most joyful I ever was in my life was when I had nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. When you're living at that level, um, there's not a lot to worry about, is there? 
Well, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, when you I, can't, I, I mean, when you don't have people. kids and you don't have responsibilities, I'm talking about like the, <laughs> like, like the, the comparison would be Alex, you know, pre free solo and all of that life was pretty simple. And there's no doubt that life has gotten a little more erratic and a little more crazy. And I'm sure he struggles with that too. What he's able to do with all that fame and everything is fantastic. You know, with his foundation and everything else, it's just terrific, but it's just more complicated. It is. It is. But again, I think it's really easy to glamorize the, the kind of dirt bag times. Mm. And, and again, there's a lot that, you know, isn't that fun when you're doing it. And it is stressful in many ways. Sure. And the grass is always greener, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. So I, like I said, as much as I think there's wonderful things about it, there's also a lot it leaves to be desired. Yeah. Well, good point. When, when making a jump here, uh, literally, when did jumping happen and why? I started skydiving initially. It was in 2007. So what are we, 20 now, yep. oh, like 12, 13 years ago. Um, and then, you know, being a climber, living in Moab, it it was pretty quick that I realized, hey, you know, there's all these cliffs around here. I guess I, I guess it makes a lot of sense, a lot more sense to be jumping off the cliffs than skydiving all the time. So um, that's kind of what took me into base jumping. people that are listening to this have got to be when they just heard your history of being a pianist and uh, going to looking at PhDs and getting into law school and being a writer. And then you jump off cliffs. I have often found uh, most of the people actually that I've met that wingsuit and base jump are so contemplative and so often very well educated and uh, I, I think for many people that haven't done it or that don't know that culture are surprised by that. Yeah. I, it, it, it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's all really problem solving on some level mm. and, you know, just like climbing, just like, I guess any sort of adventure sport, you know, mountain pursuit, it's, it's so much problem solving. I mean, don't you find that with paragliding? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, this sport attracts tons of engineers. It's something I've yeah. discovered with the podcast, but also, you know, in the X Alps in the race one day, I was walking on off the off a mountain with two engineers. Uh-huh. This is so interesting. Yeah, because there's so much of the analytical part, and that I find that part really fun. You know, I yeah. think obviously I, I I enjoy being outside. I enjoy moving. I enjoy um, exercising. And so that's where skydiving is always a little bit problematic for me because mm. I have a hard time spending my whole day in an airplane hangar and sitting in a plane and going back to the hangar and sitting in the plane. Like for me, that's tough. I would rather walk up the hill. So that's kind of where base jumping is great. Cause you get that, that kind of air sports analytical problem solving thing, but then, you know, you get to go up the hill <laughs> also. Sure. One of the kind of most sobering and also intense podcasts or shows we've done was way back in the beginning with our friend, uh, Jeff Shapiro. And this was right after Dean and Graham had died. And, you know, obviously he was going through a very, you know, I think at that point he'd lost 43 friends and now it's quite a few more uh, to wingsuiting and base jumping. Um, Recently, I 
saw a statistic and I tried to pull it up before we started chatting, but it had, you know, it was like the statistics of jumping and, and, but also many other extreme sports, you know, like paragliding had this, and I can't remember if it was a thousand hours or a thousand jumps or a thousand flights. They had it kind of pared down in some way where, you know, paragliding was, wasn't great. It was like 2.9% or something, but base jumping was almost a hundred. Have you seen this one? No. It it was, it, I think it's for, you know, for people that participate longer than six years. It, and, I, and I don't know how that, you know, but what does that mean? Does that mean in 500 jumps a year or does that mean one? I, you know, so I, I don't know how I they know, qualify all this. Tough. That's always the hard thing. I mean, data and statistics are always tricky, but yeah. um, how do you, every time you go up the hill to jump, is it something that crosses your mind? Is it something you have to process? Is it something you you have a, a way that you feel, no, this is, this is something I can participate in safely. Hmm. That's, I guess having climbed for so long before I started base jumping, I, it's, it just seems like that's mountain sports. I guess I don't, I don't feel base jumping is particularly, this certain death activity compared to like when I go climbing, Mm. if if that makes sense, because over the years through climbing, I lost a lot of friends, um, in the mountains and in climbing accidents and in just life stuff, you know, as well. So I guess by the time I started base jumping, I, I didn't, Maybe if I maybe if I did no sports ever, or just had never known anybody who died ever, and then I got into base jumping, then maybe it would feel more directly connected. Like maybe I would think, oh, it's only possible to die or get hurt if you base jump. But it hasn't that hasn't been the case in my experience. Mm. Do you do you have a favorite? trail running, base jumping, skydiving, climbing. Is there, is there something that's tugging on your heartstrings more these days? Well, it's kind of neat. I, I've been doing this stuff for a pretty long time. Now I started climbing in 91 and I've always had this approach to climbing and sports where there's certain things that I have found that I really like. (laughs) And so those things always stay pretty stable and constant, but then I'll just go through phases depending on what I'm most interested in, where I am, what the season is, just who knows why really. And so they always kind of like circle round and round. Like for example, um, there were a lot of years of climbing when I was just really into big wall climbing and expeditions. And then there were a lot of years where I was all about alpine climbing. Um, then for a few years I was all about El Cap free climbing. So so it's kind of neat because I think that's what keeps the longevity is the fact that like things always just kind of like change here and there. So right now it's kind of funny because for about nine or 10 years, I thought my knees were just shot from too much trail running and hiking with packs and things like that. I tore an ACL and, um, I was always having knee pain every time I ran and hiked in the mountains. And I, went to this physical therapist last spring and he was like, Oh yeah, this is no big deal. Just do these four things. <laughs> and I was like, what? And, um, cause I had pretty much let go of trail running on some level. I mean, I was doing it, but not really. And pretty much since then I am like full on like back at running. Hmm. 
Yeah. It's super exciting. So it's been like almost a year. So, so right now it's like, I'm trail running like daily and it's just, I I just, yeah, I just thought I couldn't anymore, you know? So that that's been super, super awesome. And I'm pretty focused on climbing in the desert right now, free climbing Mm -hmm. because it's winter and that's kind of the top season for me to do that. And so I'm base jumping, you know, a lot less, just a couple times a week right now, like maybe three times a week, which for me is pretty little and not really skydiving because it's winter season, but it's really, it's just based on the season. Do you, do you base jump now just to kind of stay current? Um, just because I enjoy it, Okay, you know, <laughs> just, just going for it. yeah, I mean, that's always why I base jump. And when you, and, and you wingsuit as well, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Is is there one you do more of? I would say because where I am right now in Moab, it's the easy, fast, like I can just go out, hike for half an hour, do a slider off base jump, boom, I'm home in an hour. So that's kind of like a really quick and easy thing. So I definitely do more slider off base jumping. There's a couple wingsuit jumps here that are good, but they're a little more of an outing. Like usually from door to door to do a wingsuit jump here for me is like four or five hours. Is if you could, you know, for the people that are listening, uh, that wanted to get into it, what, what's kind of some critical advice Uh, to, to base jumping or yeah. And wingsuiting. And we sitting, uh, well, the sequence is generally you skydive first and do a lot of skydiving. And, but the biggest advice that I try to give to people is, especially if you're not coming into it as like, if you're coming into it as somebody who's an alpinist, I think you kind of have this mentality already or a rescue professional. Cause there's a lot of jumpers that come in and they're firefighters or EMTs or paramedics or like military or something. Um, seals, they generally have the same mentality, but, but a lot of people, if you just come in from skydiving, you don't have this self-sufficiency mentality. And I think that's really important. I, when, when I go base jumping, I have a kit that I carry. It's really light. And I carry it a little fanny pack that I wear on my front. So it's on my belly when I jump. And, you know, obviously I always have the in-reach mini always. Mm-hmm. And so I've just seen enough accidents and been around enough accidents that I want to, and, and this comes from climbing too, right? Because back in the day we didn't have satellite devices at all. And when you go in the mountains, like, no matter what happens, either you're going to have to crawl out or your partner's going to have to carry you out. If you're going to get out, no matter, you know, that's what you expect. So I think that's a really good mindset to bring into base jumping. Cause I think for a lot of people that only come in through skydiving, they don't realize that, okay, now I'm going into the, the mountains and the back country and it's different, you know, it's, it's not front country stuff. And I, I need to be prepared to deal with myself if something goes wrong or something happens unexpectedly. Mm. Have you had an accident? When I first started base jumping in my first year, I came into it pretty quickly from skydiving. I, I don't think I did enough skydiving. I did less than I would recommend to people. I had done like less than 200 skydives. Mm. And so I didn't have great canopy skills. 
and I had two bad landings. I had pretty minor injuries, but for me, it was a really big deal. Cause as a climber, you know, like if you hurt your pinky, it's like a really yeah, good yeah, deal. Yeah. There's so, no downtime was, in climbing. Right. Drink, so drink, 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 like, drink. Oh my God. You know, it was a good eye opener for me. Um, a really good reality check because I, I don't really feel I can afford to be injured at all and do the things I want to do. And so, yeah, it, that, that kind of sent me back to really improve my canopy skills and really kind of just get it a little more of like, Hey, you know, you really got to be smart about this and lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had to, you know, in, in any of the accidents that you've been kind of close to they're good friends, is it ever been so just disorienting? Have you ever had to kind of leave the sport for a while or has it been something since 2007 you've, you've pursued pretty, uh, steadfastly? Um, well, when my husband Mario died and we were on the same wingsuit jump, you know, obviously that, that was, I mean, extremely life altering. Mm. And I spent a long time just trying to figure out how to live really sure. without him and how, you know, what to just how to, yeah, just how to live. <laughs> Basically that was the primary problem. And I fairly, I, I guess after like a month or so of pretty severe grieving, like, you know, don't get out of bed except maybe for a short walk kind of grieving. I was like, Hey, I got to focus on like eating food and doing things and I have to go outside and this has to happen because this is the only way, you know? So I started forcing myself to go climbing a little bit every day if I could. And I would force myself to go do a short base jump just because I, I just had to make myself do things. But, but it did really, the idea of wingsuit base jumping felt really, you know, it was really hard to think about that at first mm -hmm. because that, that was exactly how he died. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't really know how that was going to play out initially, but after some time I missed flying. And so I just thought, well, I, I need to see, you know, I need to go do this to see if I want to do it. Basically. Do you think we get addicted to this stuff in a way because of the escape side of it or because of just being in the moment, you know, the rest of life gets shed away. You know, I'm uh, thinking about this when your husband died, you know, that probably wasn't, there probably wasn't a better way to escape at least temporarily from that heaviness. I don't know. Again, I, you know, as a climber, I mean, I started climbing when I was 18 and I'm 47 now. So my entire adult life, that's, that's what I've done. And, and all the outdoor sports kind of are the same, you know, whether it's running or skiing or base jumping or wing seating or whatever. So it's funny when we have conversations like this, cause people always ask me these types of questions. It's always, I think the the presumption behind the question is, it would be normal if you didn't do these sports. <laughs> so it has to be this very <laughs> conscious decision to do them. For me, it's, I, this, these are the things I do. It's, you know, it's like if somebody was having the same conversation with me relative to like exercise, you know, 
I would be just kind of scratching my head. Like, of course I exercise. That's what I do. (laughs) Of course I breathe air and drink water and eat vegetables. I mean, that's, there's just things I do. So it's, to me, it's never been this thing of, um, Oh, well, you know, if I would not do these things, then how would my life be? That that wouldn't be the status quo, I guess. Yeah. And that's not who you are. Yeah. It's it's, it's something I've been trying to contemplate and answer for decades, Uh, you know, and I, I don't know that I have a very good answer for it. It's, it would be, it'd be a life compromise without it for sure. And, you know, I mean, I think think that's always a funny, it's a funny mindset. And I don't even, I think sometimes we don't even question it because most of us have grown up in a society where these things are considered maybe like extra or, you know, Hmm. not normal or something. Hmm. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things that people wouldn't, nobody would have this conversation about driving a car, which is (laughs) bizarre, which is more dangerous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. and, And you know, it's kind of like, dangerous and there's a lot of negatives attached to it. Of course there's positives. That's why we do it. But we would never sit here and, you know, kind of contemplate like, huh, you know, <laughs> should I really be driving a car? How would it be where I'm not driving a car? It, but it's funny. It's right. It's like what we consider, what our hive mind considers to be normal versus what it doesn't. I guess my hive mind is <laughs> the, the things I do are just kind of, that, that, that would be normal, I mm. guess. Mm. Well, let me ask you this. This is an interesting one because when, you know, for a few years we had, we had films at, at Banff and they would always premiere at Banff. And my mom, I'd always brought my mom because that was her birthday too. So that was kind of her birthday present. We always had a blast going to Banff and she would sit next to me and just take my knee off when the... <laughs> <laughs> my film would come up and I was like, mom, I'm sitting right here. You know, the ending, <laughs> you, know, you know, I made it, but, um, you know, she's had to put up with this my entire life and she is, has a really, she's decades ago. She accepted it. It was just, this is who you are. I, I'm, I'm curious about how your parents treat it. What, what, what do you guys talk about at Christmas? <laughs> um, they're, better with it now. I think especially because I have been doing all of these things for so long and Mm. it's, you know, things have gone well for me in my life as a person and professionally, obviously it was really hard for my parents as well as me when Mario died and that wasn't, that didn't go well. Mm. But again, these are things we all have to deal with, I think in life it's not unique to me doing the sports I do. I think a lot of parents are, are going to have to be faced with all of these things. So, but I, I think they're, I think they're more comfortable with it at this point. I think they still, they can't let go of wishing that I would be maybe more similar to them. Hmm. But, um, I think that's just kind of who they are on some level. Right. If you could, if you could rewind that clock back to, you know, 95, when you're getting out of college, you and I are the exact same age. So these numbers are easy for me. (laughs) Um, Would you do anything differently? Hmm. Or that you can think about while you're thinking about that, you know, if you could go back and talk to that 20 year old self coming out of college, what advice would you give Steph? (laughs) The main advice I would give myself would be, to not worry as much 
mm. about the future. Cause I, like I said, I had a lot of anxiety about it and that was really hard during that time. And I would tell myself, don't worry about it because whatever happens, you're going to figure it out. Mm. <laughs> and I tell myself that now. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. I, I, I try to do the same. Stop worrying. Yeah. Just having the confidence that you're going to figure it out. If you can imagine 10 years from now, uh, what do you think you'll regret doing too much of or too little of? Hmm. Too much of. Hmm. Gosh, I hate to say this, but, but working. <laughs> Content. <laughs> um, but I, that's probably not true. I, it is nice to have a balance, right? Sure. And I, I think that's what I craved when I was younger. And that's what I was lacking was any balance. And I, I think I'm pretty thankful that I do have that balance. So, and I, I think I'm at a pretty good place with balance right now in terms of, you know, really being able to say, okay, this is the time I'm doing this thing. And this is the time I'm doing that thing. And then feeling like I got to do all the things. <laughs> I think that's really good. You're, you're climbing, you know, trail running. I, I mean, I'm sure it, in some aspects, you know, jumping and wingsuiting is, is, is quite physical in terms of, you know, certainly in terms of the approach. Yeah. Hiking yeah. is great. The, the year, what non- I mean, I know you train really hard, but what non-training thing has had the most positive impact on, on what you do? Yeah, so I'm looking at, I'm thinking about like, you know, like visualization or meditation or it, are there things you do that aren't physical specific to your success? Definitely visualization is a big thing. That's a good thing. I've always done that. And being really organized, funny enough, helps me a lot. Mm. I think uh, I've spent a lot of years just living a pretty like chaotic lifestyle on some levels, and I always seem to have a lot going on. And I have found for myself that the more I can kind of organize my physical environment and minimize it, that seems to really help me focus on things. And so in recent years, I've kind of embraced that. I think it used to happen more easily like when I lived in a truck because it was pretty simplistic, you know? And it was really easy to have everything around me tidy. I didn't really have anything. It was great. And then as I kind of went through life and, you know, started having houses and storage things and things, you know, things you need to keep and all this stuff, it, I, I really noticed after a while that it was kind of getting to me. And so I've been really, really aggressive in the last few years with um, minimizing mm. and just get it continuously making sure I don't have too much stuff and that everything is very, you know, I, I mean, not perfectly orderly, but at least pretty well organized where if I want to just say, Oh, Hey, you want to go to notch peak this weekend and wingsuit? It's like, I grab my wingsuit rig, I grab a couple of clothes and then jump in the van and boom, not, like not a big deal. Things. You can just go do it. Exactly. And, and being a lot better about keeping stuff minimal and orderly has really, I, I've noticed that in a weird way, I think that's kind of what I was missing about being a dirtbag is the fact that it was inherently like that. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, just trying to be minimal, trying to be really orderly because otherwise 
Otherwise, it's easy to feel like there's too much going on. And then when there's too much going on, it's, it's so much harder to focus. Hmm. When, when you think about jumping, when you think about bass and wingsuiting um, over the years, is there, is there something that kind of pops out in that, wow, that really changed my life? That has made me different? Or, I don't know, more something? You mean the fact that I do it, or a no, certain... the, an experience you've had while doing it you know, that you can that or, you know maybe there's just collectively all the jumps, or maybe there was one that just changed you as a person. Uh, I mean, you know, an obvious answer is the jump that Mario died on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not the same person I used to be. I'm very different in many ways. I think partly because of of how Mario was and who he was, I, I really carry this feeling of the joy of every moment, loving every moment, appreciating every moment. And then even more so now that he's gone. Mm. All right. You must have some kind of rules, things that you've learned all these years in, in seeing accidents. Um, how are there things you could pass along to, jumpers that listen to the show but also that are thinking about it that could maybe divert carnage (laughs) yeah um i it's it's funny because there's so many accidents in air sports and i i really feel like i feel like so many of them are easily preventable and and i think there are of course the ones that aren't preventable that you know stuff just happens but a lot of them are just very simple things like checking your equipment, knowing your equipment, maintaining your equipment, conditions. I mean, you know that, right? Yeah. Conditions, conditions, conditions. Um, my husband now, Ian, he had a very bad accident almost exactly one year ago with a speed flyer. And he knew he was going out in fucking conditions. And he's an experienced jumper, experienced pilot, and he made the decision to go out in questionable conditions and have an accident. And so I, I think that it almost doesn't matter what your experience level is. It's just having that discipline with yourself. And you know how hard that is because you're always somewhere and it's a little marginal, you know, and sometimes you've done that and it went okay. So you think it's okay. I mean, you know, yeah. But really, I think if positive reinforcement for negative decisions, it's yeah, super exactly. Because you get lucky, and maybe you don't even realize that sure. you just got lucky because you think it was fine, and because we can't see it, right? True. So I, I feel like if we could just, if you would take out all of the equipment issues and the decision making slash conditions issues, we'd be left with a lot less accidents. <laughs> yeah, I mean that kind of sounds like a lot of ego there. I think sometimes it's, I think sometimes people, people really want to jump. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel that, I mean, sure. I've, I've been there and, and it's tough, you know, but I, I think the biggest advice I would give to people is, and this is the advice I give to myself is that when it's at all questionable for me at an exit point, if it's at all questionable for any reason, the decision is to walk down. 
And so that takes out that whole thing of, Oh, you know, I'm a little bit this, or I'm not sure about that. So what, and then you kind of sit there and you go in circles and then someone else jumps and it turns out, okay. You know, that whole thing. I just, my rule is if there's something that's not, there's enough, something that's not right that I'm questioning it too much. Then the rule is I walk down. If there's doubt, there is no doubt. (laughs) Yeah. On some level, because you know, who cares? You go jump again later. Who cares? Right. Sure. Well, great advice. But but that's hard. It's really hard. And I know I've done a lot of jumps. I shouldn't have. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. It's life. Isn't it? We do a lot of things we're not supposed to do. (laughs) That's what makes it interesting. Exactly. Um, Last question, Steph. This is just uh, such a fun talk, but I know you've you've got some other things you've got to move off to. If you could solve one thing in the world, what would it be? (laughs) That is a very good question. (laughs) Just one. (laughs) If I could solve one thing in the world, it would be people hurting each other instead of helping each other. Mm, Terrific. Because that's the thing that drives me crazy about this world. Because I feel like there's so much stuff that we can't control, like the nature stuff. But we can control the things that we are doing. And so I feel like if we just get rid of all the people doing bad things to each other and replace it with people helping each other, that would be so great. That would be a terrific start. That'd be terrific. Steph, thank you so much. This was, uh, we, we got, got a little deep there and that, that's always a good thing. And, but I just appreciate talking to you. You're just so fascinating and, and fun to watch. And I hope I get to come watch you in person uh, more often here in the, in the future, but thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Have Steph. a good day. Talk soon. Bye. Okay. Bye. Change, I can change. I can change. I can If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription. And it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support 
support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, All of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you. Thank you.